All right, so Margot Kidder died this week. Say, who is Margot Kidder? I'll show you a picture, and those of you over 40 might know. Those of you under 40 probably don't know. Anyone know who Margaret Kidder is? Better known as... Lois Lane, yeah, in 1978, so the year I was born, right before all the Avenger craziness, like the true superhero movie came out, Superman came out in 1978, and Lois Lane was a reporter that worked at the same place as Clark Kent after his kind of pod fell from the planet Krypton, where his family would send him to be rescued. If you've seen this movie or a version of this movie, you'll know that Superman's arch nemesis, what was his name in those first few movies? Lex Luthor, right? Gene Hackman played the best Lex Luthor um, that there was. But it really wasn't Lex Luthor that was a problem for Superman. It was what was in that green little pod right there, which was kryptonite, right? So you guys are with me. So a lot of times it's not the enemy in our life that's really dangerous. It's what the enemy uses. And if we have an enemy for our families, if we have an enemy for relationships, if we have an enemy just for friendships, that enemy is Satan. But what he uses is often more dangerous than him. And what we need to say today is the enemy of healthy relationships is unhealthy communication. The enemy of healthy relationships is unhealthy communication. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to John chapter 7. I want you to take your notes out of your bulletin so you can follow along or maybe fire up your Journey Church International app. Because today as we enter into week 4 of this series called My Dysfunctional Family, learning how to love difficult people, learning how to deal with difficult people, learning how to live with difficult people, whether you're a college student coming home to work for a very difficult boss, whether you're a mom trying to handle difficult teenagers, whether you're an employee trying to handle difficult people, or whether you are going to a family reunion with a dysfunctional family, we have to learn how to communicate well. Because if conflict has a kryptonite, like if conflict has power to destroy, if conflict has something that weakens its power, it's good communication. And in John chapter 7, we see Jesus communicating with his brothers in a pretty contentious situation, but we learn from him how we can communicate in the midst of difficult relationships. Now, a lot of things Jesus teaches us so that we can learn them and try to apply them. But every now and then, Jesus just does something. He doesn't teach it, but he does it, and the lesson is in what he's doing even more than what he's saying. And that is the case today in John chapter 7. And it's interesting, four men wrote books about the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all brought into their book about him some type of conflict that his family had. Matthew told us that Joseph at one point was considering divorcing Mary before he really realized what was going on with the immaculate conception when she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Mark told us that Jesus' family questioned the direction of his life in Mark chapter 3. They said, you just need to come home and keep doing the carpentry stuff. You're kind of losing your mind. Luke tells us that Jesus' parents were offended when he began to grow up and step into his role in ministry. And John tells us that Jesus had a little spat with his brothers. And I got to be honest with you. I'm not sure why any of these are included in scripture because none of them changed the doctrine of Christianity. None of them changed the good news of the gospel that Jesus came, um, that he ministered for three years, that he was crucified, buried, that he raised again, and that he's coming back. Like you could take all of these family stories out and none of the key information about who Jesus is and what he has done for us changes in the Bible. So we have to say, why is it in there? If it's not key to the doctrine of scripture, why is it in there? And maybe it's in there for those of us 
who have some difficult family members, for those of us who have some difficult friends, maybe it's in there because if Mary, Joseph, and Jesus can't have a family that gets along all the time, then maybe we realize our family could never get along all the time. Because I don't know very many women who would say, you know what, I consider myself very much like Mary. If God were sending his son into the world in 2018 and he could choose one woman, I think it would be me. I don't know that I've ever met one woman who would make that claim. I don't know that I've ever met a dad who said, if I was planning to do one thing, but an angel woke me up in a dream and told me to do something different, I would, I would unquestioningly do that. I don't know any dads that have the faith of Joseph and Jesus like, well, he was God's son. He was, he was God who became human, human flesh. So if their family constantly is dealing with conflict, then our families are certainly going to constantly be dealing with conflict. And maybe these stories are in here to show us how to have hope, to show us how to love difficult people, to show us how to interact in dysfunctional relationship. John chapter seven says this, it says after this, you need to circle those two words. As a matter of fact, we should never read those two words without stopping to read what's before it, but we're going to continue and I'll try to summarize because after this, John says something's happened that you need to know about. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because of the Jewish leaders and how they were looking for a way to kill him. Now circle those two words after this because John chapter seven is going to fall after this and before this. John chapter 7 is going to come after John chapter 6, before John chapter 8. There are pretty big moments in, in, of conflict in Jesus' life falling right around John chapter 7. As a matter of fact, John chapter 7 falls between two of the greatest conflicts that we have in Jesus' entire ministry. In John chapter 6, nearly all of his disciples desert him after his call to discipleship is too big a commitment. Now, if you know the Bible a little bit, you might say, well, wait a minute, Christian, John John chapter 6, isn't that where Jesus feeds 5,000 men, not counting women and children? So, I mean, didn't Jesus in John chapter 6 have 20,000 followers? He did at the beginning. Say, wait a minute, John chapter 6, isn't isn't that where Jesus walked on the water proving to his disciples that he was supernatural? I mean, that's a pretty good chapter, isn't it? That happened in the middle. But at the end of John chapter 6, those people who were following him, when he said, your commitment has to be to accept me fully, All of them left except for the 12, and Jesus challenged the 12, do you want to leave too? Are you out too? So John chapter 6 for the followers of Jesus is a chapter of tremendous conflict. John chapter 8 for the leaders of Israel is tremendously, has tremendous conflict. The Jewish leaders tried to stone him after, here's the relationship in John chapter 8, after they said Jesus was an illegitimate demon-possessed child from a one-night stand. You can read it if you don't believe me. It's in there. Read between the lines of what they're saying. Jesus responded to that by saying they were children of the devil. It's just a good old-fashioned deacons meeting. Right? I mean, like that's a, that's a fun day in church right there. And then Jesus claims to be God, so they try to stone him. John chapter 8 had tremendous conflict in the life of Jesus. John chapter 6, conflict with his followers. John chapter 8, conflict with the leaders of Israel. And then right in the middle of this... We see conflict with his family. We see a sibling rivalry develop that doesn't really have a lot to do with his followers, that doesn't have a lot to do with the Jewish leaders, but it's here. John says, you need to know, hey, even Jesus every now and then fought with his family. And what was that fight with his family? Let's read it in John chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. After this, after all the followers had abandoned him except for his 12, Jesus went around in Galilee, that's northern Israel, He didn't want to go about in Judea, that southern part of Israel, because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. 
But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world can't hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers left for the festival, he went also not publicly, but in secret. So how do we weaken the power of conflict? How do we take conflict used by the devil to weaken the most important relationships in our life? And how do we weaken it? Conflict in our families, conflict in our relationships, conflict in our jobs, Conflict with our neighbors, conflict with the people our kids play on sports teams with or go to dance with. How do we weaken the power of conflict? Jesus shows us you have to learn how to communicate. And when we look at how Jesus communicated to his brothers, we see three things here that we can take away and maybe bring into some of the tension that we live with relationally. And I think it can help us look more like Jesus and hopefully bring some spiritual peace to us. What are those three things that Jesus did? Number one, we have to learn to communicate expectations around tension and conflict. We have to learn to communicate expectations, what is expected of us and what we are expecting of others around areas of tension and conflict. So I have a counselor I go to. His name's Rick Pierce. He's awesome. I go to Rick because I want to be a better Christian. I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better dad. I want to be a better pastor. I want to be a better son and son-in-law. I want to be a better brother and brother-in-law. So I just go to him to just talk about family stuff, you know, help, help me work through tension in my family. And a lot of times I'll sit down with Rick and he'll say, you know, how can I help you? And I'll lay out a big string of stuff and I'll say, here's what's going on that's really bothering me. And usually it ends up with me saying, you know, this this is how I thought something would turn out. This is how it turned out. And now there's some conflict. And almost every time he'll say, did you let everyone know beforehand that this is how you were intending things to turn out? And almost every time I'll say no. And he'll say, Christian, he'll share the line that's on your sermon. It said, Christian, you know that if you don't have shared expectations, you're going to have shared frustrations. Like if you don't clearly tell people what you're expecting in every scenario and situation, if you don't share your expectations, you're all going to share frustrations together with people. That is what was happening in John chapter 7. We, we see different expectations. The brothers had one expectations of who they thought Jesus was and what they thought he was trying to do. Jesus had a whole different set of expectations for what God had called him to do. The brothers' expectations were this. Ultimately, Jesus just desires to be a superstar. He just wants to be famous. They said, listen, nobody does the type of stuff you're doing if they don't want the world to know who he is. And nobody who wants the world to know who he is does it in Galilee. Galilee's a little backwater town. It would be like somebody, Galilee was surrounded by the Sea of Galilee. Somebody saying, listen, if you really want to be well-known, you don't go to Branson, you go to Kansas City. A lot more people, a lot more media, a lot more going on. Like if you want to be famous, you got to go to the big stage, not the small stage. The brother's expectation, they're watching Jesus. They don't believe in him, John says. They said, listen, if you want to be famous, you got to go someplace bigger than here. And Jesus said, those are your expectations of me, but that's not my expectations for myself. Ultimately, Jesus desired to be a sacrifice, not a superstar. And Jesus said, Look, listen, I could go to Jerusalem and do that, but my goal is to fulfill God's mission for my life, to be a sacrifice. And it's not time yet. 
So your expectations of me are here. My expectations are here. And there's conflict because I didn't know what you were thinking. You didn't know what I was thinking. So what did Jesus do? He just clearly communicated. Here's who I am. Here's what I'm doing. Here's how I want this to work, how I think it's going to work out. If you don't have shared expectations, you'll have shared frustrations. So in every point of this message, I want to kind of show you what Jesus did and maybe give you some key communication or some key questions to possibly help when you find yourself in conflict relationally. One great piece of key communication when it comes to sharing expectations is this. These are my expectations in this area, unless you lead me to alter them. So I'm walking into an area that I think there might be some conflict in, and I say, listen, I just want you to know, before we go here, here are my expectations for this, unless you think we should alter them. So I'm not just telling somebody what's going on. I'm giving them a chance to speak, but I'm letting them know, here's what I'm expecting. Does this sound right to you? Because if you don't have clear expectations, if you don't have shared expectations, you're going to have shared frustrations. And one good question to ask, when you can, t- when you can sense that somebody is constantly frustrated with you, kids, this might be a great question to ask your parents if you're a high school or a college kid, and it seems like your parents are always frustrated with you. Ask this question, what are your expectations of me in this area? I know it seems like you're always frustrated with me. What are your expectations of me in this area? Husbands, ask your wives this question. What are your expectations of me in this area? Employees, ask your boss this question. What are your expectations of me in this area? Boss, ask your employees this question. What are your expectations of me in this area? And just let people share because if you don't have shared expectations, you will have shared frustrations because people can't just read each other's minds. This spring, I was with one of our businessmen on a trip um, that he was taking, uh, and he came out of his room, and he said, Christian, come look at my pants. And I walked out, and he had pants on that looked like capris. He looked like a little European-like guy. All he needed was sandals, but they weren't capris. And I said, what happened? He said, look what the tailor did to my pants. I don't know if you've ever had a pair of pants uh, or a suit jacket or a dress altered um, or tailored a little bit, but sometimes you got to have stuff you know, lengthened a little bit or shortened a little bit or taken in a little bit or taken out a little bit. So he had taken a pair of pants to the tailor because they were too long. He needed them shorter, but they made them way too short. They were just a little longer than shorts. And he said, look what the tailor did. And I said, how does that happen? And he said, well, when I took them in, I said, I need some, some, uh, length taken out of these. And the lady said, put them on and let me measure. And she, and he said, I don't have time. Just do them like all my other ones. But it was a different type of pant, different style of pant. And she said, it's going to be really hard without me putting the pants on you to see where they need it. And he said, just do what you do with the rest of them. And he came back and he's like, what am I going to do now? And I'm like, well, clearly you should have taken more time and let her measure those. There's no way you can alter a, a piece of clothing without it being on your body. That, that would never fit anybody. But that's what we do with expectations. We, we try to shape expectations without ever fitting them on somebody first and saying, how does this fit you? How does this fit your schedule? Here's the expectations I'm building for you in our relationship. How does this fit you? Do, I, do you need more time, less time? Do you want it a little looser? Do you want it a little tighter? Here's all my expectations. How does this fit you? We just like guess and then throw it on people and wonder why it doesn't fit. Or maybe our bosses or our spouse or our kids or our parents do that to us. They shape some expectations. They throw it on us, but they've never asked us, how does that fit for you? And things just always feel uncomfortable. So we learn to communicate expectations around tension and conflict. Jesus said clearly, you're thinking one thing, 
I'm thinking another is not going to come together this time. What else did Jesus do? Number two, we learned that Jesus communicated in advance. We learned that Jesus communicated in advance. You say, how do you see that out of John chapter 7? Well, it takes probably a trip to Israel, driving around the country, and then a little knowledge of Jewish history, and a little knowledge of Israeli geography to understand how Jesus communicated in advance here. But here's what you need to understand about communicating in advance. If you don't share communication timelines, you're going to share relational tension. Even if you have shared expectations. If, if your expectations are, you're expecting your expectations to be done on timeline A, and somebody else understands your expectations, but they're planning on doing it at timeline B, Students, try this with a project. If you understand what the teacher wants, but they want you to turn it in on Friday, and you're planning to turn it in on Monday, it doesn't work if the timelines don't match. If you don't have shared timelines, you'll have relational tension. So Jesus gives people plenty of times to let difficult conversation sink in. Look at John chapter 7, verse 1, and then we're going to flip down to, to verse 8. It says, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He didn't want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. We know the rest. His brother said, you have to go if you want to be famous. He said, you don't understand what God's called me to do. But in verse 8, he said this, you go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he said this, he stayed in Galilee. Now to understand how we learn to communicate in advance here, you have to understand some things about the Festival of Tabernacles, and you have to understand basically the map of Israel. So the Festival of Tabernacles was one of three annual festivals where all Jewish males would try to go to Jerusalem. In Deuteronomy 16, verse 16, God said, all males are supposed to appear before me three times, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles. They didn't call it the Festival of Tabernacles. It was called Sukkot. If you have a, a calendar that maybe has Israeli and even Muslim holidays on it, you'll realize that Ramadan started earlier this week. You might see later in the fall Sukkot. What is Sukkot? It's a Hebrew word that means booth or shelter. It means tent. It's a temporary dwelling. And during the Feast of Tabernacle, people would live in temporary dwellings for seven days to celebrate how God kept them alive in the wilderness for 40 years. Here's what they were basically saying. They would leave their homes. They would leave their televisions. They would leave their stoves or refrigerators for a week. And here's what they would basically say for a week. It's just going to be us, God and family. And we're going to realize we don't need all of that to be happy. So they literally would move out of their house. So they would realize their happiness, their fulfillment, their joy was based on God and family and nothing else. And everything else was just extra. He wanted to make sure the people's hearts didn't get too attached to their stuff. So he said, once a week, leave it. And by doing that, you'll commemorate that I took care of people for more than 40 years. This is what his brothers were going to do. And it was held in the fall each year after the harvest to celebrate the end of the fall harvest season. God's come through. We have enough food for the winter. Everything's going to be good. So let's just pull things back and remember that life is about God and family, not all of our, our stuff. That's what the festival was. You would go to Jerusalem and then stay outside Jerusalem in booths for seven days. However, going to Jerusalem took a little bit. If we look at travel facts, Galilee, northern Israel, was roughly 90 miles from Jerusalem, which was in Judea, if you travel through the Jordan Valley and you passed through Jericho. So if you look at this map, and a lot of people have maps in the back of their Bible, but they never look at them, you should always try to go figure out what's going on in geography when you read letters, because you'll see the Sea of Galilee up here. Jesus is from Nazareth. His ministry hometown is Capernaum, and it says he was going to Jerusalem. They would always travel through the Jordan Valley along the river, plenty of waters for your flocks and animals and herd and family. You go down to Jericho, 
you would swing it west and you would head into Jerusalem. You say, why won't you just go the shortcut way? Because Jews were not allowed to walk through this place right here. Samaria was a bad place. John chapter 4, Jesus finds himself at the base of Mount Gerizim in a little town called Sychar where he ministers to a woman at the well. But rarely would you go straight from Jerusalem north. You would always take the long route, 90 miles to get there. Now, here's what you need to know. A standard ancient pace for walking, get ready, was 20 miles a day. If your family traveled in the ancient world, you would walk 20 miles a day. We just got back from Israel. There were a couple days in Israel where we walked eight or nine or 10 miles and everyone was dead. That's only a half day work in ancient Israel. They would, work, they would walk up to 20 miles a day. In Acts chapter 10, Peter goes from Joppa to Caesarea, 40 miles. It takes him two days. That's about the ancient pace for going, which means it's going to take at least four and a half days to get from Galilee to Jerusalem. But many Jews would take two days to go from Jericho to Jerusalem because it was straight uphill. So now four and a half turns into almost six and a half. Remember Jericho's right by the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea's 1,500 feet below sea level. Jerusalem is 3,000 feet above sea level. So you basically are 5,000 feet straight up. So they'd stop halfway and they wouldn't travel on the Sabbath. So you would see that this journey would take at least eight days. It would take no less than a week to make the trip to the festival of tabernacles. And then you would celebrate it for a week, which means Jesus was communicating at least two weeks in advance. I'm not going to be able to be a part of this family function this year. That's if he said it on the day that they left. But you see, he's communicating in advance. And he's not just communicating about this family event that he would miss. He's communicating why by talking about the larger purpose of his life. Jesus clearly communicated both short-term plans, not going to make it with you this year, and long-term purpose, because my calling is something different, and it's going to be fulfilled at a different time in advance of the expectations that were placed on him. Now, a couple weeks ago, I told you how when I marry couples, I try to help them understand the tension that they're getting ready to come into. Marriage is the greatest thing you'll ever do. Marriage is the hardest thing you'll ever do. I don't do marriage counseling because I'm not a professional counselor, but I meet with people to do some ministry stuff before I marry them. And I always say there's four areas where you're going to experience massive tension. They all start with F. The first is your finances. Get ready. Finances will always cause you stress in your marriage. The second is going to be your friends, specifically your single friends. When you get married, single friends can be dangerous for you if they still treat you like you're single instead of married. Third is, is going to be your faith, where you decide to go to church, how you decide to raise your kids spiritually, how committed you're going to be to your church and your small group. That's going to cause tension. And then the last is going to be your family. It'll be your greatest source of tension and stress. And I always have them start at their wedding date and write out the next year of holidays. Memorial Day, 4th of July, Labor Day, Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, Father's Day, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, New Year's. I have them write them all on a calendar, and then when they get them lined up, I say, okay, now I I want you to go ahead and lay in for the next year. Which of your families are you going to spend all those holidays with? The girl almost immediately starts crying. The guy immediately says, it doesn't even matter, which means his mom is crying somewhere, right? Because it's like, you know, what do you mean you're not coming home? Um, And like this immediate tension kind of takes hold. And by the time we work through it, we basically say, let's let's develop a plan. What do you want? And they usually say something like this. We just, you know, we need to kind of divide them. We need to we need to split them up. We need to spend half with one family. We need to spend half with another family. And that's the easiest route. Remember, 54% of kids my generation, age 25 to 45, 
54% of their families are actually divorced, which means most people have four families, not two families, who they have to try to figure out who they're going to spend holidays with. Massive tension upon tension upon tension. But usually they can figure out a plan and say, here's what we think is going to be best. And then I say, great, when are you going to tell them? And then the tears start again, and it's like, we're just going to not show up and hope they know. And it's like, no, 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 you, like, you, have, to, you have to communicate. And it's like, but they're going to be so upset. And it's like, I get it. But if you have a clear purpose for what you're going to do, and, and you have a clear plan, you need to communicate that in advance because it will help from the major blow-up that's coming if you don't communicate clearly. Listen, delaying clear and honest communication only builds pressure that leads to damaging blow-ups. I mean, when you know hard communication is needed as a boss, when you have an employee you, you have to confront, the longer you delay it, the harder it's going to be. As a parent, when you have a difficult conversation with your kids, the longer you delay it, the harder it's going to be. As a spouse, when you need to talk to your spouse about something, the longer you delay it, the harder it's going to be. As kids who need to talk to their adult parents, the longer you delay it, the, longer, the harder it's going to be. And the more pressure builds up, and if enough pressure builds up, Eventually, there's going to be a blow-up that cannot be repaired. You know, 28 years ago this weekend, Mount St. Helens blew up. They're, they're commemorating the 28th anniversary by releasing pictures of Mount St. Helens that have never been seen. These were found in an attic, a family who lived around Mount St. Helens and would travel around in their Cessna and take pictures. This was after the first earthquake underneath the mountain in March of that year. And then as the thing over the next two months began to explode, they would fly around and take pictures of the mountain until finally go to the last picture, guys. The northern half of the mountain just exploded off and everything within a 230-square-mile radius was destroyed. But here's what's interesting about Mount St. Helens. That hole, before it was a hole, was a pregnant mass. You say, what do you mean a pregnant mass? Between the earthquake March 1st and the earthquake March 18th, it ultimately blew the mountain. Unlike Hawaii that's fracturing and steam's just rising up everywhere. Mount St. Helens had no pressure releases. Instead, the mountain swelled. They said the mountain swelled from its normal position more than 500 feet out in this direction. They knew exactly where it was going to explode because it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And they knew this mountain was going to blow off the north side because it was pregnant with pressure. And some of you right now are in some relationships that are pregnant with pressure. There is communication that needs to be said. There's a conversation that needs to be had. And every day you delay it, more and more and more and more pressure builds. And if you delay good, clear, even difficult communication too long, eventually things blow up and they can never be put back together. So Jesus, several weeks before he's going to disappoint his family by not being at the festival, says, I'm not going to make it this year. And he gives the long-term purposes of why that's going to happen. Jesus could have said, like we say passively, aggressively, hey, you coming to the festival this year? He could have known there's no chance, but he could have said, oh, yeah, I think so. I'll, kind of like, I'll catch up with you. I'll see you there. And then like the day before text and said, oh, I'm not going to make it. When he knew the whole time he wasn't going to make it. He could have avoided, 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 then had a blow up. But he said, no, I'm not going to make it this year. And here's why. He communicated in advance. And here's why that's important. Last minute communication can appear to lack heart. Last-minute communication can appear to say to someone, I don't really care about you. I don't care what you've planned. I don't care what you've prepared. Last-minute communication oftentimes can communicate, even if you don't mean to. It's really all about me, and I'm not even thinking about you. Communicating in advance says, I know what you're expecting, but here's the reality of that situation. How can we work this out? 
some great key communication in this area would be maybe saying something like this, and you can take these lines and use them with people you live with, people you work with, people you're in relationship with, because these are our larger goals. We're trying to see our family, you know, each evenly because these are our larger goals because I want to be able to watch my kid play sports this year. I can't put in all this overtime. Hey, because these are our larger goals, I want to try to get in shape this year. So I'm not going to come home every night at dinner time because these are our larger goals. Here's the plans I'm trying to make. What suggestions do you have? So again, you're not just saying this is the way it's going to be. Deal with it. But if you're communicating enough in advance, you can say, here's what I'm thinking. Here's why. What do you think? Here's what I'm thinking. Here's why. What do you think? I communicate in advance. And a key question you can ask is this. What's an agreed upon time frame to make a decision on this so nobody's frustrated last minute? You know, we know we've got this thing coming up. There's going to be some conflict. We're not sure how it's going to work out yet. But when can we all decide we're going to make a decision on this so we don't stretch it out and let it build up till it blows up? When, when can we decide It's kind of a healthy time frame to make a decision on this. Jesus learned to communicate in advance. He teaches us to do the same. And then number three, we learned this watching the rest of the story of Jesus from John chapter seven. Clear communication results in spiritual peace, even if it doesn't produce immediate spiritual impact. We don't read in John chapter seven that any spiritual impact was made immediately. But we know in the heart of Jesus, he said what needed to be said, and we know spiritual impact eventually came. So this is the phrase I want you to remember. Clear communication can result in a clear conscience. Clear communication can result in a clear conscience. Clear communication doesn't always bring peace. Clear communication doesn't always solve problems. Clear communication doesn't allow you to take responsible for how anybody reacts to anything. But for you, clear communication can lead to a clear conscience. Romans 12, 18 says it this way. This is a verse every Christian should have memorized. If it's possible... As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Paul, by saying, if it's possible, says it might not be possible. But Paul says it should never be your fault. If it's possible, and it might not be, you need to live at peace with everyone. But you can only be responsible for you. If it's possible, as long as it depends on you, you have to live at peace with everyone. They might not want to live at peace with you, but you are responsible to live at peace with them. A part of that is communicating clearly and then just trusting in God for the results. So John chapter 7 is the latest we see Jesus' brothers before his death and resurrection. And they don't believe in him. They don't believe he is who he said he is. But something important happens in John chapter 7 where he communicates something that probably was necessary to communicate. Five times Jesus told his disciples. Think about it. Five times Jesus told his disciples, they're going to arrest me. They're going to crucify me. They're going to bury me. I'm going to raise again. I'll catch up with you, with you when it's over. Five times he told them, they're going to arrest me, they're going to crucify me, they're going to bury me. I'll raise again and catch up with you when it's over. After five times when he was buried, all the disciples quit, even though Jesus had told them exactly what was going to happen. But only here does he tell his brothers, they hate me and they're going to end up killing me. And maybe for the first time, his brothers, because they understood who Jesus was and what he was called to do, began to back down a little bit and just watch. It would take them 18 months. We don't see them again until they're sitting in an upper room praying in Acts chapter 1 when the Holy Spirit falls. We read his disciples were there. We read some of his followers were there. And then we read his mother and his brothers were there. Two of his brothers would end up writing books of the New Testament, James and Jude. That's how much they ended up placing their faith in him. But it took 18 months of clear communication for them to see, okay, maybe we can trust in him. It took 18 months for Jesus to communicate to his brothers who he was. 
It took Joseph, remember Joseph, not Jesus' father, but Joseph from the Old Testament who we've been studying, took him two years after good communication to see any fruit out of it. But he finally did. Remember Joseph's stories? His brothers, his brothers hated him, so they decided to kill him. And instead of killing him, they sold him into slavery. They sold him into Egypt. He ends up in Egypt, but he's different. We talked about this last week on Mother's Day. He was just different. He stood out from culture. And because he was different, because he was trusted, because people saw something spiritual, supernatural in him, he ended up being placed in a pretty high government position until he was accused of a rape he didn't commit. He was thrown in prison. His DNA was all over the place. He didn't do it, but he really couldn't get out of the crime. And as he's sitting in prison, he overhears two other people who used to work for Pharaoh talking about being in jail too. And here were their stories. One of them was the chief bread maker. Apparently he made some bad bread, got thrown into jail. The other one of them was the chief cupbearer. Apparently he delivered some bad wine. He got thrown in jail. And these two guys had dreams and they're talking to one another about their dreams. The baker says, I had a dream, three baskets of bread sitting on my head. Um, you know, and then birds came and started eating out of the top. And what do you think that means? And the chief cupbearer said, I don't know. That's crazy. I had a dream too, you know, about three vines coming out and three cups given to the king. And what do you think these things mean? And Joseph overheard him talking. And he said, I can tell you what they mean. Clear communication. It was going to be hard communication. For the baker, he said, here's what your dream means. Three days from now, Pharaoh's going to lift you out of prison. He's going to cut off your head and you're going to die. Bad news, but true news. I just had to tell you. Chief Cupbearer says, what about me? So three days from now, he's going to lift you out of prison, but he's going to restore you to your position. And listen, when that happens, don't forget about me. I didn't do anything wrong. Tell him that I'm, tell him that I'm here so I can get out of prison too. The Cupbearer says, got it. And he gets out of prison. He's restored to his position. And Genesis 40, 23 says this. The chief cupbearer, however, he didn't remember Joseph. He forgot him. He forgot. After clear, healthy communication, he forgot about him. Until the first verse of the 41st chapter. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. And when he had a dream, he couldn't understand. The cupbearer remembered. Ah, I forgot. There's a guy in prison who communicates clearly who communicates honestly, who communicates good news with hope, who communicates bad news with grace, who just speaks clearly and says what needs to be said. I think he can help you with your dream. And Pharaoh says, get him up here. And after two years, it took two years for healthy communication to be fruitful in Joseph's life. But after two years, he gets out of prison, he interprets a dream and he finds himself overseeing all of Egypt. Why? Because he was willing to communicate bad news gracefully, good news joyfully, but always willing to communicate. God gave Joseph the ability to communicate openly and honestly. So at just the right time, his good communication would lead to spiritual breakthrough for him and for others. So Paul says, as long as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You cannot control how people respond, but you can control how you communicate. So as long as it depends on you, communicate with everyone. Clear communication can result in a clear conscience. So maybe this conversation happens this way, a piece of key communication. Because I want to be at peace with God, here's what I need to communicate. You know, you may not be bothered by this, but in my heart, I've been bothered by this. So I just, I need to get this off my chest. I need to communicate to you. Or maybe a question for somebody you've been sensing tension with. You know there's something unsaid. You don't know how you can get them to say it. Maybe you could ask this question. Is there anything keeping you from spiritual peace that you need to communicate with me? I can tell something's bothering you. I can tell at some point I've not met your expectations. I can tell something's not right. I just don't know what it is. So is there anything that's keeping you from being at total peace spiritually that you want to tell me? I want you to know I'm open to hear it. Because as long as it depends on me, I want to live at peace with you. And I, I want you to live at peace with me. 
We look at Jesus in John chapter 7, communicating expectations so that he can relieve tension. We look at Jesus in John chapter 7, communicating in advance because last-minute communication can appear to lack heart and can cause blow-ups that can't be fixed. We see Jesus trusting that if he just communicates in a timely, respectful manner, God will help it all work out. So what part of that do you need to hear and apply today and this week? What relationship do you have some shared frustration with right now because you've never just clearly said, here are my expectations, and you failed all of them? Who's, who's frustrated with you right now that you've never gone to and said, I know you're frustrated with me. I don't know why. Can you share with me your expectations that I've not met? Right now, what pressure is building in a relationship where you've got, to com- you've got to communicate something difficult, but you're thinking, if I wait, it'll just go away. And the reality is the longer you wait, the more it grows until it just blows up and can't be put back together anymore. And what hard conversations do you need to have that you think if I just have them, it'll at least allow me to have peace with God and then I'll just trust God for, with, for the results, even if it's years from now. That's what Jesus is trying to teach us today in John chapter seven. We pray with me as we consider those things.